Hello and welcome to episode 282 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And we are coming to you from Renton, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 champion Seattle Seahawks. Hello! What a whirlwind of emotions this football season has been. <laughs> what a whirlwind of emotions Sunday was. <laughs> Let me tell you, you didn't experience all of them because you were on a flight for a large portion of the day. I got to miss a lot of the fut- futility. When the Mariners were down... And the Seahawks were down 7 nothing and had five consecutive three and outs to start the game. <laughs> Things, we saw that darkness. That's what I, man, you were, you're so lucky that that happened. <laughs> and Mariners fans, they're so lucky that they've seen the darkness for 20 consecutive seasons. Oh, and counted. <laughs> and counted. Who is well, two, 82, though? I was trying to think about that. It, Joe Juravicious? Oh, oh, someone who is number 82. Yeah. Uh, Joe Juravicious, I believe, was 83. Three. I feel like there's been a lot more notable 83s. D- was D-Jack 82? That doesn't or 83? Right. Daryl Jackson? Yeah. We're gonna, wow, we're going to sound like... He was one of those two, undoubtedly. I have this uh, spreadsheet. I've not opened it in a long period of time that had all of the like most oh. notable players. Oh, there we go. Daryl Jackson was yeah. 82. Yeah, okay. All right, that's a great one. Like, he's kind of like the forgotten Seahawk, I feel like. He in, really is, In a yes. lot of ways. I mean, before most f- people were fans of the Seahawks, or mm-hmm. currently fans of the Seahawks. <laughs> Clearly us too, if we can't, re- literally can't remember his number. I don't think that not remembering his number is the same as not remembering Daryl Jackson at all. Like, he, when did he last play for the Seahawks? 2007? 2006. Okay, that was, he, did, he that didn't was, play for the Seahawks for very long. That was 15 years ago. Had, I think we could be excused for not remembering his jersey number off the top of my head. He had a pretty short anymore. tenure. This is how long ago Daryl Jackson played for the Seahawks. In one of the seasons he played for the Seahawks, you're not going to believe this stat that I'm going to tell you. The Mariners made the playoffs. Oh, no. That can't be possible. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Well... Uh, the other number 82 I have in my spreadsheet is Ernie Conwell from UW Football. So I love that you have a spreadsheet for this, just Look, in case it comes up. You, let's be, you know, people, the listener knows. You have I have a spreadsheet for everything. <laughs> Unless I've converted it over to doing it in R. Uh, that's not what we're here to talk about today. We're going to talk about the Seahawks and Mariners more. But for now. You know what season it is. We do. It's fresh hop season. It continues with our friends from Bale Breaker Brewing, which you were surprised to learn earlier today, is in Washington. It says right there on the, on the bottle, local craft, Washington made, from Moxie, Washington. You said this is the home of, this is from the Fresh Hop region. So that's outside Yakima. Okay. And that's where the hops are grown in that general area. And so uh, this is the, the Bale Breaker homegrown Fresh Hop IPA. It's number eight in their homegrown series which features 100% homegrown hops and 100% homegrown malts. Release number eight in the series is a fresh hop IPA made with freshly harvested and homegrown Sim- Simcoe wet hops transported from farm to fermenter in under five minutes. No! If you're taking more than five minutes to ferment your hops, I'm just not even interested in your beer. Wow, these hops might be too fresh. Oh, no. This beer features intense aromas of hoppy grapefruit and berry pie. We grew this beer. That's it. <sighs> Ooh, those hops are fresh. All right, a couple of toasts this week. First off, 
to uh, Seahawks legend Marshawn Lynch announced Tuesday is the NFLPA's first ever brand ambassador, mm. which I believe makes him the Drake of the NFLPA. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, but no, a, a very he's got courtside role. tickets to NFLPA meetings. <laughs> gets hyped on them. A very appropriate role given Marshawn's leadership in terms of players thinking about their post-playing careers and managing their money. It's always been an important thing for Marshawn uh, and gets to certainly promote that even more now. Uh, And and another similarity, David Stern would also have loved to have fined him as well. (laughs) I can imagine so. Oh, I I bet David Stern had some takes when Marshawn refused to talk to the media. (laughs) Uh, our other toast this week to UW product, Kelsey Plum voted the WNBA's sixth player of the year. Plum also finished second in most improved player voting after returning from the Achilles rupture to average a career high 14.8 points per game this season for the Las Vegas Aces, who face elimination uh, Wednesday night. Our Aces? No. No. We're no not they're, still, they're still a rival. Hated rivals, but Kelsey Plum. Oh, sure. We'll ride. For, I mean, like. Of the teams left in the playoffs, we can ride for them. I That's mean, why there are aces. You, you, know, you could go for Chicago because they do have Kenzo and Courtney Vandersloot. Mm. Courtney so. Vandersloot's from Kent? Yeah. Really? Pretty sure. Oh. Pretty sure she went to like Kentwood. Oh. We're just looking stuff up on the pod this week. This this pod is uh, just us Googling. I, I have no personal affiliation to Kent or preference for the city of Kent, by your, the way. Your children go to the Kent School District. You know? I live in the city of Renton. Thank you very much. You actually don't live in either. Well, <laughs> you live in I live in the sort of city of unincorporated King County. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Some classic Pelton Coast <laughs> geography as usual. But I, I don't. In fact, I stand in opposition to Kent. <laughs> Opposition. Courtney Vandersloot went to Oregon, correct? No, she went to Gonzaga. <laughs> Even worse. You, I mean, I don't know that. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you'd have recruited her. I, I think she went to Gonzaga because she wasn't a Pac-12 recruit at that the point. The Kent to Gonzaga pipeline is not something I'm going to be cheering for. Thank you. But the UW to Las Vegas pipeline, that's something that I that can, get, can behind. get behind. Okay. That's fair. <sighs> kind of hot about this. I heard the word Gonzaga. Your fierce hatred of Gonzaga women's basketball knows no bounds. I was watching the Stanford Oregon game in uh, LA for a second over the weekend, and the person I was with was like, "Do we care who wins this game?" And I was like, "Well, I hate both of them." <laughs> I but mean, to me, it's not even a question. It's obviously you want Stanford to win. Oh no, I was cheering for Oregon for the pac 12s pride, and also I. Genuine, genuinely dislike Stanford more than I hate Oregon. We talked about this on podcast number two, and you were shocked that I personally do not like Stanford more than I don't like Oregon. Despite everything, despite everything that I know about Stanford and all the good things that have happened to me because of Stanford University. Richard Sherman, Doug Baldwin, Ben Baldwin. Wow. I still prefer Oregon somehow. (laughs) (laughs) I, I miss that game. I was out at uh, Baby Fantasy Genius's baseball game on Saturday in Ravensdale. Hello. You went out to Ronysdale? I did. <laughs> Didn't see a lot of masks out there besides <laughs> our group. Besides Baby Fantasy Genius on the mound. How'd he do? Uh, the, the pitching was not so hot on Saturday. Wait, really? Yeah. He struck out the side last night. Struggled with his control in this one. Oh, he was throwing darts last night. And then they, they, did, they did get to him when... Uh, with some solid content. Like, anytime you put the ball in play with kids this age, it's going to be a hit, basically. Oh, I think he told me that his defense let him down. <laughs> Did he actually put it that way? Yes. Oh, 
You, it was the you, most Tristan take that he could have given. His how is. animated he is on the mound. I don't know if you saw that. He wasn't real animated when I was there. He he started to rein it in. His coach told him he could only like celebrate if he gets a strikeout, but not after strike two. Okay, that's a that's one. a good call. <laughs> I think uh, two for three at the plate with three three total bases. Oh, Hanager like. Yeah. Uh huh. So. A strong effort there. That's great to see. And it seemed like his team won. I don't know, I don't know <laughs> if they keep score at that point. Oh, they do. Okay. Well, yeah. that's right. They have the statistics. There's an app. They have stats. They have war? Uh, they might. They have some pretty advanced level stats in that app. pretty wild. Uh, do you want to talk about your, your trip to Los Angeles at all? Do we have any food you didn't eat in Los Angeles <laughs> this week? Nowhere that I didn't, <laughs> didn't eat. I went back to Sonora Town. Uh, for the first time, oh, the second time ever. The Instagram follower, I guess that's not that's different from the listener. The Instagram follower noticed that you went to Sonora Town. And did it look delicious? Yes, it did. It, it did look delicious. I'm going to say this. It was not quite as good as the previous time. Wow. The first time I went, I was like, this is clearly the best burrito. It was Would only cl- your second time? This is only my second time. All right. I think this, I've been at least three. This would clearly be the best burrito or taco in Seattle, and I'm not sure if I can quite get there. Hmm. But I have not been to Los Angeles in over two years now. Wow. Which is very uh, disappointing. I went to the Grand Central Market for the first time ever. How would you not been to the Grand Central Market? I guess you're not staying in downtown like I've, I am every time I go I've to LA. Been in downtown, I've stayed in downtown LA. The last two times that I've been there, but normally I'm in wherever, You're like going to all different neighborhoods of the city. It actually is just where I literally am just like put an address. I don't know where I am. <laughs> well, but we know you don't know where you are. A lot of the time in Highland Park, I feel like, okay, what I will say, La Covita, Little Cave in Highland Park, best bar in Los Angeles. Okay. Excellent bar. I just love everything about it. It's like the Lindas of Los Angeles. Huh. Like they had a person doing tarot readings there. I'm like, it's fucking almost October. I'm so into this. Uh, but Grand Central Market, 15 out of 10. Easy. Easy. We were talking like this is the killer Sam's Town level good. That is how good Grand Central Market is. There's so many different businesses there. Yeah. Uh, you saw those donuts that I had from the Donut Man? I sure took notice Phenomenal. of Phenomenal. I mean, I was, yeah, because I've. you also went to Egg Slot when you went there, right? Yes. So I've been to Egg Slot in the Grand Central Market a couple of times. I've been there at least three or four times, I think, when I've been in L.A. So it's definitely a good place to go. I went to Frogtown Brewing in Frogtown, uh, nice. right along the L.A. River. Uh, it was phenomenal. There's just so many places in L.A. that you go to where you're like, I wish this was in Seattle, and it would never work in Seattle because it rains all the time. <laughs> Look, we're doing more outdoor stuff now. You're just like, there's this massive patio, and it's perfect. Like, we have Fremont Brewing Company, and that's it. But in L.A., there's a million places like this. We don't just have Fremont Brewing. You know, you know it has a very nice patio that I was on on Sunday, even though it was cloudy and kind of cold. And it was that? not that uh, old stove brewing. Oh, I want to go. That's the one that overlooks the, the old viaduct. <laughs> uh, we were actually noting the, the real view you get is the back of the waterfront Marriott. Is it really? Because so there used to be. Are there the not torts about this? No, I mean obviously you can see over it. It's not that high. It's just, it's, but it's much more visible now than when there was the viaduct in front of it. I'm getting mad about tort law here. Uh, after I went there, I wanted to shout out. Uh, finally, hit up the Chachi's pop up, is they were serving burgers, which are kind of like, I don't know if you went to In and Out on your trip. No. 
uh, kind of in and out style burgers and fries. Interesting. So I've like we've been following them for a long period of time on Instagram, but it's never worked out to go to any of their pop ups. And finally, like I was blocks away, I was able to walk over, and that was quite delicious. All right. So they also do burritos. So got to try that pop up as well. Uh, I think that's we don't have any chicken or search for Seattle's fried chicken this week. We're planning to resume that next week. I tried to go to Cookies before I went to Old Stuff. No, on are Sunday. you kidding me? Well, they were out because it was the Mariners game. There they were, were 40, out of chicken. They were out of they were bone-in closed. fried chicken. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah, and there were they 40, can run out of chicken. Just not being open is not okay. There were forty-four thousand Mariners fans there, and I don't think anyone was planning for that to happen at the start of the week. Yes, which I guess we we're still doing cracking ahead of M's hot takes. All right, let's get let's continue with that that on the rundown. Uh, the Kraken wrapped up the preseason earlier tonight in Vancouver with a four nothing win over the hated rival <laughs> Canucks, formerly our favorite team, Canucks. Uh, it, a busy week for the uh, the Kraken since we last talked about them. One four three in an in an actual shootout that counted. At Calgary, it was 3-3. They won the shootout 2-1. Uh, on Friday, they beat Edmonton 2-1 at uh, the Angel of the Winds Arena in Everett in overtime, then lost 4-1 to Calgary on Sunday at the or Saturday at the Excesso Showwear Center in Kent before wrapping things up in Vancouver. And we are now one week, as it's we record wild. this podcast, seven days away from the very first official game in Seattle Kraken history. We made it. Yeah, it's pretty wild. I, before then, I just have to say, I feel like teams moving in or out of a city shows just how superficial and absurd rooting interests are. I mean, yes. But what, what, what specifically makes you think this? It was like we were rivals with the Blazers, and then the Sonics are gone, oh. and then I cheer for the Blazers. It's like yeah. the, the idea of cheering for or cheering against a person, and that you can feel it so viscerally. Like people, you go to these sporting events sometimes, especially games like this right or football games right people are getting into fights with with each other over these like rooting interests lafc and la galaxy fans after el trafico they are they're so just like so superficial and absurd why we cheer cheer for who we cheer for literally today on the c channel on comcast where you can favorite a team luca was like i'm gonna unfavorite the canucks and favorite the kraken that was it it was wow, just like big literally all it took was existing. Big. They didn't have to do anything. We're just it's just like we've seen the brand, we've got the merch. <laughs> but they're our favorite team now, and somehow we hate the Canucks. They're our team. I mean it's it's different when you have <laughs> They represent team. us, but those Canucks, oh we hate them. <laughs> I mean, I always get this in the context of on November sixth, UW hosts Oregon. Speaking of that rivalry, which I consider UW's biggest rivalry, unlike some people at this podcast, yeah. who apparently are more concerned, you're circling October 30th when UW plays at Stanford. Stanford dominates them more than Oregon does. Uh, I don't think that's actually true. Uh, you have not watched a game. I understand Oregon games are frustrating. There is a, a level of frustration that you get when watching fucking David Shaw coach oh, no, a I football agree. team. Davis Mills, and, who was responsible for one of the worst offensive performances in NFL history on Sunday. They have had consecutively the most horrible-to-watch coaches in college football history, number one and number two. They're basically going back to pre-forward pass days. They're running the wishbone at Stanford. And tell you're you. telling me that Oregon, of all teams, who if you take if you strip everything away, at the very least is an interesting team to watch. Oh, they're, yeah, they run a very exciting 
exciting offenses. And you prefer them over Stanford. Yeah. You have never watched a game. You're aware that Stanford doesn't have any fans to be like That's why have it's any animosity. Worse. That's why it's worse. Okay. I, I would think you of all people who have attended a UW Oregon game in Eugene would feel this. Much better than being in Stanford. Oh, it was a glorious day at Stanford. It actually the game really itself nice. was not so hot. That's but. that's the thing though, is we understand Oregon. It rained the entire way <laughs> to Eugene. Both both directions, there and back, it rained. It was every one of the radius days second. I can remember. I, of, I wasn't even the there. Drive. I was at the uh, Sonics Legends tour, the exciting finale. I'm smart enough to have vowed basically to have never go to a, go to a road game because all you can bring upon yourself is pain. I don't know if I would say it's all you can bring about yourself. Like for a long for a long period of time until midway through Sunday's game, going to that Seahawks game against the Colts was by far the highlight of the Seahawks season. <laughs> by far. I guess I guess it's a safe bet when Carson Wentz is involved. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Can they put Carson Wentz back in the back twelve? Or you could have gotten Eason, which probably would have been an even safer bet. Well, uh, so anyways, my point was on November sixth, you know, I was going to play Oregon, and depending on the time of that game, I may drive down to Portland because the Blazers are hosting the Lakers that night. So it'll be an interesting, like everyone else driving down I five will be Oregon fans, except me. Wait, explain this timing. The Huskies play the Ducks. That there is no game time as yet for that because it's not five days before the start of the game. <laughs> Just rest assured, it'll be eleven p.m. <laughs> well, that won't work. No, I think that's a chance to be a, a noon kickoff. In which case, I can make seven thirty Blazers Lakers at Moda Center. And you're saying that everybody driving back down south will be yes an Oregon fan. Yes. Yeah, you'll work up some hatred. I mean, I I've done that drive to Portland the day after a UW Oregon game. One time, mm-hmm. uh, back during the lockout, but day of would really be something. So anyways, the Kraken. <laughs> I don't know how we got here. <laughs> we hated rival Canucks. Uh, we're, uh, some some positive news on the injury front for the Kraken is center Yanni Gord is making progress in his return from shoulder surgery. He told reporters on Monday that he's at the half contact stage after practicing without the red no contact jersey. Still don't expect him in the lineup you know, within the next couple of weeks, he's still got a ways to go in his recovery, but he'll be an important part of the roster uh, going into the season in terms of creating some more goal-scoring opportunities. So so as we head into the Kraken season, it's a week away. I, I, I want to do, do a separate Kraken preview. Wow, okay. That's my plan. Wow. All right. Uh, but the next time that we do a full weekly Pelton cast, there is going to have been... A Kraken game that counts. Yes. Wow. Yeah. We've been talking about them and thinking about them for so long. It is pretty incredible to have it actually be here. I mean, I can only imagine how it feels for people like Randy Cote or, or one of our Kraken correspondents who have been diehard hockey fans for a long period of time. The level of excitement. I'm I'm genuinely fascinated. Speaking of waiting a long time <sighs> and the level of excitement, it's time for... <laughs> A farewell to your favorite segment. Don't burn yourself. We got Mariners hot takes coming at you. Well, I talked last week about my favorite game of the season. And unfortunately, we didn't get to play one of those. But we did reach my second favorite day of the year. That's right. 
Mariner's Elimination Day. Oh. A time-honored tradition now for two decades. And honestly, let's live it up. Because making the playoffs is easy. Historic futility, that takes work. Getting your hopes up for one weekend and then being dashed days later. The Mariners are performance art. But anyway, I don't know if you saw this earlier, uh, but Pitchfork revisited some of their previous reviews today and re-reviewed them. Wait, today? And it got me thinking, yes, that happened today. And it got me thinking about some of the previous hot takes throughout this Mariners season. Oh, wow. We've in the past done like a compilation of the hot takes. You're going to do it for us. I'm going to revisit them. (laughs) Yeah. So when I said... This team reminds me of the 1995 Mariners, repeatedly. I said that so many times. Before the Seattle Times. The Seattle Seattle Times said it? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I mean, at some point it did become kind of an obvious take. But yes, they were like two weeks behind us, as always. (laughs) Well, I mean, we've been saying it since like May, so (laughs) they were months behind us. What I really meant to say was, this team reminds me of the 2014 Mariners. Oh, okay. Good enough to get this close, go all in the next season, and lose 100 games. People kept saying it was just like the closest the Mariners had been to the playoffs since 2001. It was like, I remember 2014. There were a few times when I said Jared Kelenic is looking like a young Daryl Strawberry. I said that. The person who hit 171 this year. What I meant to say was <laughs> Kelenic hit 171 and looks more like the second coming of Justin Smoke, Mike Zanino, or Unieski Betancourt than he does in 86 Met. Wow, this is a turn. When I said Kevin Pelton's hot takes were lukewarm at best what i meant to say was look at these fucking bandwagon jumping mariners fans watching their first game of the year in october when they don't know their cow rally from their yusei kikuchi i mean i i can tell that when i said that the Bud i just Light... can't tell the different the two different jakes on the team <laughs> apart i i don't take it i'd have to watch at least 100 games to get really when i said that the bud light seltzer fall flannel pack looked like a quote Fun festive romp? <laughs> what I meant to say was, please, dear God, no. Why? Why did you do that to yourself? And during fresh hop season of all seasons, when I said in July that the season was over, what I meant to say was, somehow, we actually had the most thrilling Mariners season of the last 20 years ahead of us. One which would enrapture the city of Seattle until the very last day. Although it wouldn't give us a game 163. When I said that this was the most thrilling Mariners season of the last 20 years, just one sentence ago, what I meant to say was Hanniger had the team in contention until the very last weekend. That's right. Build the statue. Oh, wow. And finally, he's, he's achieved almost as much as people who have statues. And finally, when I said... The Mariners were going to win the World Series this year. <laughs> what I meant to say was, there's always next year. Wow. I don't even remember the, the World Series take. It was, uh, it's, all, it's all spread in there at various times. If you have takes in every direction at all times. That's the beauty of MSAT takes. You're always right about something. I, I did watch my first Mariners game. I said on Twitter that it was two and a half years, but that, now I'm revisiting it. 
And the the game I was thinking of was when they honored the the 40th anniversary of the Sonic 79 championship team. And I did not watch that game start to finish because I was interviewing members of the 79 team at the start of that game. So I don't I don't know how far back we have to go to find the last Thank, game. I thanks watched for revisiting that take. Aaron, Aaron Seeley started the last time. Oh, I don't know if it was. It was that probably long. that one time we went to opening day, say in like 2002. I mean, I definitely went to opening day when uh, Bedard pitched. Pedro started against us, the one that I'm thinking of. Yes. I mean, that was much earlier than... You went to opening day when Eric Bedard... Yeah, I've been to several Mariners opening days for someone who's not that much of a Mariners fan. Uh, Definitely went in like 2007 because it was opposite the championship game that Odin was playing against Florida, Odin and Ohio State. Uh. It, it was a lovely night, aside from the win. I ordered a Pagliacci pizza, got the prosciutto fig primo, seasonal. Uh, they delivered me a six-pack of Rainier Tall Boys, so I had those to go. Oh. It was it was a grand time. God, we should build Pagliacci the statue. Now, now, now we're talking. <laughs> Saturday and Sunday, they were both opposite Huskies and Seahawks, so it was... Not able to pay as much attention, but the Huskies game conveniently ended just in time for Hanniger to deliver the the game-winning hit on Saturday night. That was a legitimately thrilling moment. So it was fun to be part of the Mariners bandwagon for one weekend. And maybe maybe more going forward. What Do you have an expectation for next season, a non-hot-take expectation for next season? I, I mean, I guess it depends on what happens over the offseason, but... I genuinely feel like there's a young core on this team. Right. I mean, one of the questions that got posed, I think Corey Brock on The Athletic wrote about this, is like, does it matter that this team obviously got super lucky to be in the wild card race on the last weekend of the season? And the answer is no. Not In terms of this season, not at all. It doesn't change the enjoyment. It wouldn't mean any less had they made it to the playoffs. It does mean something in terms of projecting forward, but I don't think they're going to start at you know, minus 50. I, you know, I should look up what the final run differential was. I, I didn't oh, have that God, in the I'm notes. Su- surprised you just don't have this memorized. <laughs> Sadly, it got worse on the last day of the season uh, with, with that loss 7-2 to two to the Angels, even though it ended up not, not mattering. But uh, I, I think they're going to start out at a slightly better than 500 team, assuming like an average offseason. Like my, when we had this conversation... Uh, on Sunday night, I said 85 wins, and I was not the lowest person at the table. I mean, I I feel like the base expectation should be less than 85 wins. Uh, I saw some projections today that indicated 82 based solely on players who are under team control for next season. So the notable players who are not under team control for next season, I don't know how they're counting these, but the Mariners hold a $20 million team option on Kyle Seeger. If they decline it, it's a $2 million buyout. And it, Sunday sure felt a lot like a farewell to Kyle Seager. I mean, somebody from their front office basically like booked him a ticket out of town well, already. Kevin Mather spoke the, that those comments by deposed Mariners president Kevin Mather came before this resurgent season for Kyle Seager, but which changes the calculus a little bit. Even still, I think that you can understand what the tenor was about Kyle Seager in the front office. Also, apparently he hasn't, according to Ryan Divish's article on, on Friday, he hasn't spoken to Jerry DePoto in four years. Which is a wild fact, uh, but was removed from the game in the ninth inning to a standing ovation. <laughs> chance from the crowd. I'm skeptical that about that fact. Official. Hasn't spoken to, like, what does that mean? They haven't said hi. I, it, it indicated that yes. No, I'm, I, that's bullshit. I do not believe that. 
The Mariners and have... also, that's on Jerry DePoto. Yeah, that's the point. Okay. That's a, what, that wasn't on Kyle Seeker. No. Uh, M's ha- the M's also have an option to offer Yusei Kikuchi, the aforementioned Yusei Kikuchi, a four-year, $66 million extension, and would then owe Kikuchi's former team, the Saitama Seibu Lions, is an additional $7 million. Uh, if they decline that extension, then 2022 becomes a $13 million player option for Kikuchi, who was named an all-star but saw his ERA balloon to 5.98 after the break and last started September 23rd, going six total innings in his last two starts before the Mariners skipped him in the final week of the season. So you say Kikuchi is going to sign for $13 million for 2022? It, I mean, it actually feels like this might be a sweet spot where, you know, Nate Duncan likes to say when there's these player team options, like inevitably one of the two is going to decide to pick it up. But there could be a sweet spot. Obviously, the guaranteeing him $66 million over four years seems probably not like a good idea for most any pitcher, but particularly one who struggled as much as he did in the second half. But one year, thirteen million, he might be able to do better than that in the market if he gets a couple years. I guess it also he also may want to go back to Japan at some point. So we'll see on that one. Uh, James Paxton, Tyler Anderson, who came on as you a have starter, to assume that James Paxton's. I, you, you would think he's probably going to move on. Tyler, but also career might be over. Also, also very possible. And relievers Sean Doolittle and Hector Santiago also free agents. So if the Mariners do lose Seager, Kikuchi, and Paxton, those are th- I think maybe their three highest paid players on the roster this season. So it does open up a certain amount of payroll flexibility. But are they going to spend money? Like the the point of this rebuild is not to spend money right now. But now you're getting to the point where when you win ninety games, I mean, I don't think. You don't want to block your prospects. You don't want to go God, overboard in terms of spending. Shit ever. Yeah, they you got don't... lucky to win ninety games. They're going to spend money on a free agent who won't do anything, and then they're going to win sixty six next year. I forget who the other guy that was. They signed the year they signed Richie Sexton. You don't want to do that, but do you maybe want to sign Nelson Cruz? Sure. Oh, I'm all in favor of signing Nelson Cruz, of course. I mean, that was more of a general Nelson Cruz. No, specifically no, 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 just, Nelson Cruz. Just Nelson okay. Cruz. Yeah. Uh, the In other news for the Mariners, they announced Tuesday that they've signed a lease to take over the former Pyramid Ale House, which is located Kitty Corner from T-Mobile Park, which, and this was news to me, apparently closed permanently in April 2020. Wow. Because there was a reason we couldn't go there before the Seahawks game. <laughs> so that's that's kind of a bummer. But what are they going to do? News. They're, they're, they're going to put their own operation out there. A Seahawks restaurant bar? Hmm? A Mariners restaurant bar? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I got to say, the Mariners, they think about... The, it is exactly the way that you would expect them to think about it. Like, the Mariners think about their shit like fucking white people. Like, <laughs> right? Like, it's just like, this is how... Ba- like, you talk about they own Root Sports. So they own the TV rights to the Kraken. That's correct. Right? And the Blazers. And the Blazers. Debut, debut on like, Root Sports they, last night. The Mariners are expanding their business beyond baseball. In a way that you have to be impressed by, I suppose, if you like conglomerates. I mean, this is generally a thing that is happening now in sports. Uh, my Baseball teams, though? Not as much probably in baseball. Like, to have as little cultural capital in Seattle as they have, but also control the TV rights for the team that every single person wears their merchandise every single day. Including me, literally, right now. It's, it's impressive. And now they're spreading to the bar and restaurant business? Yeah. So, I I think this is becoming more of a thing. Like when I went to Wrigley Field, uh, my friend Todd mentioned that the Cubs had built out like you know bar inside the 
it was like outside the stadium. You don't have to be inside the gates, but you know, a way to control people drinking before your games is I'm sure the Mariners are thinking as well. Uh, no, it's very impressive to have heisted a stadium from the city. Well, Use all that money that you've made by not having to pay for the stadium and then expand your interests. I'm telling you right now, they're like, they are literally, they're acting like billionaires. They probably became 10 billionaires during the pandemic. I still think this is probably a good thing to have another option. There's going to be a Mariner's coin pretty soon. <laughs> that, I mean, could definitely cannot rule that out. Jesus uh, space will be open year round. So there you go. Uh, I also want to say, we didn't talk about this, but the pre-gaming for the Seahawks at, at T-Mobile at Park, T-Mobile, not bad. No. They kind of did it right. Right on the big screen, they had the Mariners on one half and they had NFL Red Zone on the other side. Like they didn't just put on the fucking CBS game or the Fox game, right? Or have both of those. They had Red Zone up on the big screen. Until Sunday when I got to watch some unadulterated Red Zone during the morning. Uh, while streaming the Mariners uh, after the afternoon, after they they started their first pitch, uh, that was before that T-Mobile Park was the only red zone I'd watched in the first wow. three weeks of the season. That's really depressing. But the other thing <laughs> is beer prices. We were at the Edgar's Hit It Here Cafe, Edgar's Cantina, Edgar's Cantina. Sure, Hit It Here Cafe, I believe, is in right field. But that's also Edgar's. I'm not sure. Okay, I d- I don't know how few playoff games you need to win. <laughs> To have a bar cantina named after you. They're going to name one after Hanniger. I think they probably should, right? The Benton Courts hit, hit it here cafe or whatever. <clears throat> but uh, also, they charged just normal bar prices for the beer at the game. Correct. Like, it was a very un-Mariners-like move and shockingly wise. It was like $5 or, like, it was, like, actually a good price. After being in L.A., dra- dra- <laughs> like, a draft beer, I'm like, oh, it's $7.50. I'm like, yeah, pretty reasonable. But $5 at T-Mobile Park pregame. I, I, again, I was shocked by that information. Yeah. So consider checking it out. There is a, like, I think it's $1 charge to get in which you were theorizing is just because they need to charge something legally. So it's in Hanniger's contract. <laughs> I think it's more likely in Yusei Kikuchi's contract <laughs> to see how complex that was. Hanniger's only eligible for arbitration. <laughs> uh, Seattle Sounders. I hope he makes a lot of money. Hanniger? Oh, yeah. I mean, he's definitely going to get a healthy raise in arbitration, one would assume, coming off this season. The Seattle Sounders wrapped up that... Uh, Topsy-turvy, I guess I would say, Dave Sports in Seattle on Sunday with a 3 nothing win over the Colorado Rapids in a matchup of the top two of two of the top three teams in the Western Conference. Before that, on Wednesday, had gone to San Jose, completed their road trip with a 3-1 win. The Sounders, they're hot right now. Three wins in seven days, nine points, solidifying themselves off top of the Western Conference. On Wednesday, Raul Ruiz scored twice in the first half, opening the scoring with a strong left-footed finish before converting a penalty won by Christian Roldan, then left at halftime with a hamstring injury that sidelined him on Sunday. Roldan then scored in the second half, the third consecutive game he'd scored to make it 3-0 before the Earthquakes pulled one back with an own goal. On Sunday, the Sounders kept a clean sheet against Colorado, scoring three times in the opening half. Roldan expended that goal-storing streak to four, then had assists on both other goals. Uh, set up Jimmy Madronda for one, and then a powerful goal where Joao Paulo muscled his way through much of the Rapids' defense, basically the soccer equivalent of the Beastquake, in stoppage time to make it 3 nothing. 
Uh, Brad Smith missed both matches after testing positive for a breakthrough case of COVID-19, according to the Socceroos manager, Graham Arnold, after he was left off Australia's roster for World Cup qualifying. We learned that he was just officially in health and safety protocols for MLS. Uh, Sounders still two points ahead of Sporting Kansas City with a match in hand against them. Colorado now has dropped six points off the pace. Sounders a 71% chance of finish top, finishing atop the West, according to 538's Soccer Power Index. Uh, after getting a little bit of a break, no midweek game, Sunday, they'll, Saturday they'll host Vancouver, which comes in fighting for the last playoff spot in the West, one point back of Minnesota United and two back of LA Galaxy and Real Salt Lake with a match in hand on both of those teams. So the Sounders had a time period over the summer where they looked a little bit weaker. Yep. They were without some key players due to international competitions. Yes. And I, I, I think it really looks like now at the very least they're they're the class in the West. Yeah, I mean, they've got one more matchup coming up with Sporting Kansas City at home. If they can take care of business there, then I think it becomes very likely that they win the West. And they would be favorites to make the MLS final. Yep. Which would be the fourth time in the last six years, I want to say. So, yeah, I mean, Sounders, they keep keep playing well. OL Ring did not play against the rival Portland Thorns on Saturday, as all NWSL games over the weekend were called off in the wake of damning reporting on Thursday by Meg Linehan of The Athletic on North Carolina Courage coach Paul Riley's sexual manipulation of players with previous teams, including the Thorns. The Thorns chose not to renew Riley's contract in 2015 after players reported allegations against him, but after one season out of the league, he found a new job in the NWSL with the Courage, winning the league's Coach of the Year honors in 2017 and 2018, and was still coaching the team, currently in third place in the NWSL, before being fired Thursday <clears throat> after the report. And so, understandably, after this report came, came out, all hell broke loose. Uh the players involved had reiterated the allegations to new NWSL Commissioner Lisa Baird earlier this year after the league finally adopted an anti-harassment policy, only to be told that the incident had been, quote, investigated to conclusion. The report added to tension between league and players. After a number of events this season, Washington Spirit coach Richie Burke was allowed to resign as coach and move into a front office role after players complained of abuse. And Megan Rapino, among other stars, and on Thursday called for the resignation of everyone involved in allowing Riley to continue coaching without repercussions after the 2015 investigation. Later Friday, Linehan was the first to report that Baird and league counsel Lisa Levine had both been ousted from their roles. They officially resigned. Now, the, this also dragged the rain into it. The Washington Post article on Thursday reported that former ring coach Fareed Bedstidi had been asked to resign after CEO Bill Predmore was told of, quote, inappropriate comments to players regarding their fitness and nutrition. These concerns were raised about Bedstidi's coaching in France by U.S. Women's National Team star Lindsay Horan when Bedstidi was named rating head coach. Predmore told the Post that he had not been aware of quote, any specific issues or concerns before Ben Steady was hired, but that the team had instituted zero-tolerance policy after hearing Haran's comments, which she had made these previous to that, but reiterated them after he was hired. So not, you know, not on the same level, certainly, as what happened with Paul Riley, but also kind of concerning 
that we knew this was uh, an issue going on with Fareed Benstiti, and he was similarly allowed to resign with the implication being that it was just about the Reigns' struggles to start this season. Uh, one of the things Bill Predmore told local media was that that was partially a result of timing in terms of being able to make that announcement, which the obvious implication is he was allowed to resign because if they had tried to fire him for cause, he would have there would have been a lawsuit. And that's one of the many issues here that, I think ultimately works against protecting the players, which is the most important thing that, you know, I think we need to make sure happens. And the other theme of the reporting here uh, across these various, and, and it's more incidents even than this in the NWSL, which like women's soccer in general, because this predates the NWSL, the Riley's story started in the WPS, the previous professional league before it disbanded that it's it seems endemic to women's professional soccer. And one of the themes of the reporting is that the precarious financial status of women's professional soccer in this country has made it more difficult for players to come forward with allegations, which is really disappointing. Now, hopefully the fact that things are trending in a positive direction for NWSL, certainly the arrival of Angel City FC is an expansion team with a star-studded group of investors, uh, many prominent uh, women in that group made it easier, I think, for this to become a story now. But, you know, the league needs our continued support and players need to feel that they can make a living wage, which is, you know, another issue as they try to negotiate a collective bargaining agreement for the first time. But certainly more than that, even to feel protected and able to speak up when they're when they are abused. So, wow we stand with, you know, the NWSL players and, and certainly offer our support and and uh, our opposition to, to any attempts to, you know, to abuse them. So no word yet on the status of this week's NWSL games. Urain scheduled to play the Chicago Red Stars on Sunday as they continue to be second in NWSL. All right, some Seattle Storm news, even as the off in there in the off season. Last week, the or earlier this week, I should say, the Seattle City Council unanimously approved a bill amending size limits and parking requirements that paves the way for the storm to build a dedicated practice facility in Interbay. Uh, critics noticed that, noted that this change shares much in common with illegal, quote, spot zone zoning changes, since rules limit the application of these changes to three parcels of land, one of which is owned by Storm co-owner Ginny Gilder across the street from the team's business offices. Uh, it's currently used as a parking lot. But council members rejected those claims and approved the ordinance anyway. And since Mayor, outgoing Mayor Jenny Durkin helped initiate the legislation, that means now only a legal challenge could affect the ability to build a practice facility there. Uh, although Gilder and Sue Bird testified to the Land Use Committee in support of the bill, the storm has yet to say anything publicly since its passage, so we don't know a timetable for construction. Uh, the team currently uses a seasonal practice court in the basement of C Seattle Pacific University's Royal Prome, Rome Pavilion, so it certainly would be a big upgrade to have their own facility. Is that in the site of the former storm offices? It's So it's the storm, the office that you're in mm -hmm. is one side of the street, the parking lot is the other side of the street. So where where is the building going to go? In the parking lot, like it's like it's just a large empty lot right now, that's unpaved. So that's where they would put the facility. I, I feel a little uncomfortable with the idea of Subert testifying in this scenario. <laughs> Wait, why? 
Uh, there's just something about like uh, something that basically like Subert, obviously, I suppose, hypothetically would benefit from this and the players would benefit from it. But it is something that so specifically benefits management. No, I think they would benefit hugely from not having to share a locker room and a, a practice court with the students of Seattle Pacific University. I mean, I Sue guess. Bird might not because uh, we'll see if she's still playing by the time this practice facility comes about. But one thing she mentioned in her testimony that I thought was interesting was that the the facilities have actually become a point in WNBA free agency recruiting. And she mentioned as a factor in the players that left in free agency last year, uh, Natasha Howard, Sammy Whitcomb, and Alicia Clark, all of whom went to teams that are jointly owned with NBA teams. And therefore I think are able to use those practice facilities or, or the, the mystics I think have their own section because it's the wizards practice facility and their home court is also the home court for the G leagues capital city go, go. So better facilities than you're getting again sharing them at a college uh gym so definitely for the players benefit but obviously ownership is the one who wants to have that benefit what well, so. there's there's such a strange relationship between the city and sports teams right that we obviously like understand how complicated it can be but this idea that like the storm can't use a practice facility for recruiting WNBA players, it's kind of like, okay, right? Like, th that shouldn't be the city's responsibility. Well, it's not, I mean, the city isn't, isn't paying anything to this facility, to be clear. It's just a rezoning of the land to allow that. Uh, they could build a, they could have built a practice facility, but it would have been limited to 10,000 feet. Now they can build up to 50,000 square mm, feet. Okay. So... The the legality of the zoning is is the the question mark I guess rather than you know the the benefit of to the city of having a practice facility. Uh, let's move on to UW football, which suffered a twenty seven twenty four last Saturday at Oregon State. Uh, I I mean I don't have a lot to say about this game. I wanted to talk about it. How much of this game did you see on in LA? Zero downs. What do you mean? How much of this game? Well, you did. You had a comment to the group chat about it at one point, didn't you? No. Okay. About the Husky game? Yeah, I thought so. You said, "Well, it's like random who's playing in the Husky games from week to week." Uh, so I assumed that was related to that was looking at Twitter beforehand. I say and seeing the injury news going into it. I mean, I don't know that it's a random, but. It, it certainly has varied a lot from week to week. That's it, fair. It's just the information. You have so little information before going into a game. I mean, we were a little surprised, I think, that Richard Newton didn't play in this game. And it was a pleasant surprise that Trent McDuffie did. But I don't know that this one was like we're getting the stuff sprung upon us. So Oregon State won this game 27-24 with 48 passing yards. That's a thing that happened. They just did not pass the ball? I wish I had a, a look at your face. Well, they ran for 242 on 50 carries. They were 7 of 15 for 48 passing the ball against the UW secondary. <laughs> is the front, the front seven is just getting bulldozed in these situations? I, I mean, I don't know enough about run fits to really assess where the problem lies here. At some point, it becomes a Husky issue, though. Right. Yeah. If you know that, like, you have to force them to pass the ball. 
Yeah. If I, I do think the idea of like, we'll just put everyone in the box. Like, okay, well, at some point, then that's creating opportunities to run to the edge. Or if everyone's at the line of scrimmage and you break through the first level, then you've got additional yardage there. So I don't know if it's that simple, but there certainly are ways to be more effective in run defense than the Huskies have been. Let me just say you have a scheme issue, right? But also, like, at the end of the day, Oregon State also averaged 4.5 yards per play. I mean, the Huskies lost this game on offense and special teams, as they have all season. You're saying that Oregon State didn't gain so many yards. They must have controlled the clock pretty significantly, though. They did have, and I mean, actually not. They had 32 minutes time of possession because they had a lot of short drives as well. Because there's three and outs running into boxes? Yeah. Or whatever, yes. So Wow. It was a very unusual game where the first half, I mean, similar to this, the the Huskies the Seahawks game the next day, I would say, the first half it seemed like, okay, Oregon State is completely dominant. Uh, they take a 17-10 lead to the fourth quarter. Then the Huskies run off back-to-back touchdowns to take a 24-17 lead. And you're like, okay, things are great. But Oregon State comes back with a, a quick touchdown drive. And then the... the How did they have a quick touchdown drive? A long run? 27-yard touchdown run, yes. What it really shows me is that there's one ex-Husky coordinator who should be coaching this team. And it is not Jimmy Lake. It is an offensive coordinator, a coordinator who can adjust his game plan given the defense. And that's always, you have to look at it. Like we talk about Brian Dable, like evolving as a coordinator. The thing that was exciting about the Bills last season and possibly seemingly this season, we don't know enough, is how much they were willing to tailor their game plan to their opponent. And I think that's something that gets a little bit underrated in looking at the offensive coordinating ability is if you see a weakness in your opponent and they're not going to adjust to it, which clearly the Huskies were not able to keep doing that thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, you look, Jonathan Smith is, looks like a very promising head coach at this point. I agree. He also was already head coach of his alma mater. I know. I know. When the Huskies were hiring a coach. And there was he, when he became a head coach, he was no more promising than Jimmy Lake was when he became a head coach. So all these things are true. Uh, so this then the game eventually came down to the Huskies go for a fourth and one around midfield on their final possession. It's tied at this point. Yes. Uh, the Dylan Morris sneak comes up short, despite the fact that that's, that play had seemed so good over the course of the year. Uh, and Oregon State then is able to control the clock, run it out, and kick a field goal as time expires and win this 27-24. As I noted on Twitter, the college football fourth down bot overwhelmingly supported the decision to go for the fourth and one, saying that punting would have cost the Huskies three points of win probability. I mean, I I haven't seen this play, but I'm sure it was the right decision. (laughs) When knowing that a Dylan Moore sneak on fourth and one... It's been a very high percentage play. They're picking it up 80% of the time, right? It's just sometimes when something happens 80% of the time, 20% still happens. Correct. And that 20% meant losing the game. But I'm sorry, 4% of win probability now that I'm revisiting this. The goal is to win the game. The goal is not to prolong losing the game. And you have certain windows to win a game. And the Huskies, from these descriptions, took the window to win the game. And it didn't work. Yes, but they called the right play in the right situation, and that's really all you can ask for. 
Uh, so some good news on the injury front heading into the bye is Jimmy Lake said that Zion Tupola Fatui is now week to week in his return from the Achilles injury he suffered during spring practice. So that would be a, a nice addition, a welcome addition, certainly. I also, we've complained about this, I think, with rookies in the NFL, but like people who are all about recruiting or whatever, recruiting people, you would assume Savelle Smalls as yeah. one of the highest recruited defensive players the Huskies have ever signed. I picked him, my bold prediction was he was going to be Pac-12 defensive player, or Pac-12 defensive freshman of the year last year. It's and just a non-factor at this point. Yes. And you can't look at these rankings and just assume that any given player is going to make a difference when it, it takes so many players in college football who are so young and so raw. And scheme, a lot of the time, matters more. And I think that the Huskies have a scheme issue. On defense? I don't know if the on, on run defense, yes. Yes, on run defense, I would I would generally I, agree. I don't want to say defense overall. How did the offense look, though? Did they... Well, we're going to talk about that. Are we? Because I'm going to take the opposite side of this debate now. Wow. I'm going to agree with you, as difficult as it is. I think now is the time, as we head into this bye week, for the Huskies to consider playing Sam Pure. Wow! That's how bad Dylan Morris was in this game. Really? He started out great. The first touchdown drive, a long touchdown pass to Terrell Bynum, just throwing the ball in rhythm. But he got picked in the second quarter, and there was some pressure that he started struggling with, and he was completely gun-shy in the second half of this game. So when the Huskies took the lead with those back-to-back touchdowns with a turnover in the middle, same as the, the 49ers stretch, the reason that happened is because they exclusively went to the Wildcat. They ran the Wildcat, I think, like five or six consecutive plays, and Sean McGrew just kept ripping off, ripping off long runs. It was the most successful the running offense had been all season, aside from also a stretch late in the first half where Kamari Pleasant got going, similar to Alex Collins the next day. He was playing the Alex Collins role. We're now at a point, one game against Montana was not enough of a point, but we now have a larger sample size of Dylan Morris this season than we did last year. And he's been ineffective. His 39 QBR, uh, according to ESPN, would be the lowest by a UW quarterback since Ronnie Fouch replaced Jake Locker in 2008 during the 0-12 season. It's one of the 15 lowest on record. Obviously, it's not a full season yet. At this point, look, I'm just suggesting that they consider a change because the coaching staff knows more about where Sam Heward is in his development than I possibly can from reading the accounts of beat writers during fall practice. But I don't now expect Dylan Morris's performance to going forward to be better than a typical highly rated freshman quarterback. Bold. For you of all people. And the other thing is, like, the line actually blocked pretty well in the run game at the very least on Saturday. You've got the full complement of wide receivers now. He was without Kate Otten, uh, who, again, missed this game uh, in health and safety protocols. But... Uh, Kate Otten's probably not coming back next season. So if you're that dependent on Kate Otten for your success, that's not going to work long term. When did you get here? Second half on Saturday. You were just like, I'm done with Dylan Morris. I'm not done with Dylan Morris. I just, it's reasonable now to consider a change based on a large sample of the Huskies' offense ineffectiveness. Okay. Who's next in two weeks? UCLA. Okay. What you're going to need to score some... I know they lost on Saturday, but you're going to need to score some points against Dorian Thompson-Robinson and company. <laughs> I love him. Uh, 
Also, by the way, the track record of freshman quarterback in terms of QBR in the Pac-12 is much better than I thought it was. There's not been that many of them, but uh, there's been seven dating back to 2009, and five of the seven have had a QBR of better than 60. And they've all gotten terrible by like their sophomore year. Well, no, Joe, Jared Goff was one of them. Yeah, yeah, they've gotten terrible. Jake uh-huh. Browning. I said was, what I said. Jake Browning had an amazing sophomore season. Just by his senior year. Got it? Yeah, well, Dorian Thompson-Robinson continues to develop. Ugh, so good. So. Do you think there's a legitimate chance that that will happen by UCLA? I don't know. I, I don't know. Do you think Jimmy Lake's job is in question right now? No. He's definitely going to be the coach next year. Yes. No matter, even if they lose out. If they lose out, I don't. I mean, maybe that changes things. But they would have to be very bad for him to lose his job. He's got a long time left on his contract. They believed in him very much as a head coach when they promoted him. Understandably so, is did I. Uh, and I think that the change in offensive coordinator is a much easier change when the defense continues to be extremely good and I don't get what's happening at special teams at all. What are the chances that John Donovan is the coordinator next year? 10%. It, extraordinarily low. Yeah. I think that a pivot to Sam Heward, even if Jimmy Link's not feeling the heat, so to say, a pivot to Sam Heward buys him time. And talking about the future, like this season for all intents and purposes. I mean, Dylan Morris is still like, is he technically a freshman? I don't, or is he technically a sophomore? I don't know what, he what class year. anyone is anymore. Yeah, no, classes don't matter. It's just, you're going to leave college when you're ready to leave college. <laughs> <laughs> when you feel like it. Uh, Sean McGrew is still a freshman. But you understand what I'm saying? Like, Dylan Morris, Sam Heward still represents, like... I mean, I think Dylan Morris could be very successful if he transferred and went somewhere else in the same way that Jay Kaner is right now. Don't you dare compla- compare him to Jay Dylan Kaner. Morris is still technically a freshman. For is he record. really? Yeah. That's actually hilarious. He's a third-year freshman. <laughs> uh, he cannot be compared to Jay Kaner. Why? We have proof of concept of Jay Kaner. But we didn't have proof of concept with Jay Kaner when he was at UW. You can't say it because, I mean, I get what that, you're saying. You that can't like, just be like some, this is what people always fucking do, actually. It drives me crazy when people do this. Because some person was successful doing something. But do, they say that every person will be do, be successful doing that thing. Dylan Morris was good enough to start at UW as a redshirt freshman. Players who are that good are going to develop over the course of their career. Especially over if they who? have seven years. In a pandemic season? that should have never been played well, they, the games still were like against <sighs> other Pac-12 opponents barely I don't even know what that means what they canceled it? many of the games <laughs> okay that's I mean that's true but the games they did play were against Pac-12 opponents and he I'm played pretty saying, well you can't just say just because J.K. there have been other quarterbacks might I invoke Nick Montana. But I'm saying Nick Montana wasn't good enough to start. By the way, he was not as highly recruited as I thought. I was going to recruiting rankings to... Sam Hewitt is significantly higher recruited than... Yes. Okay, thank you. But Nick Montana wasn't good enough to start at UW. None of these other guys that you're talking about were good enough to but start at UW. But they had players UW. entrenched ahead of them. Sure. Dylan Morris didn't but have also, that. if they were that good, they would have found their way on the field. All right, fair enough. I don't know if I agree with that. You're not understanding that Jake Hayner is a generational type quarterback. <laughs> not, this is no disrespect to Jake Hayner. I'm just saying 
if you're good enough to play early in your career, and can you we just see flip around to doing develop- a Fresno State update weekly? It's <laughs> <laughs> all I want to know about is how Fresno State did last week. I do not care about how Dallas played. I, you know, I'll have to get you the update on Fresno State. I'll have to look yeah, that look up. that up. But I'm just saying, just because one player happened to have gotten better when they went to, but another this is team, like your theory that if guys stay around long enough in college, eventually they become good. My theory is also that you can't just cite a single other person being successful at doing a thing and then say that everybody will be successful doing that thing. All right, you I'll can go, always I'll look go at look it. for a study of all the quarterbacks who started in the Pac-12 as freshman. Period. You seem to think they all get worse after that for some reason they they do they seem to not be very good in the nfl here's the the list by the way is it's Jaden daniels two years ago keaton slovis two years ago dorian thompson robinson josh rosen jake browning jared goff matt barkley actually it's not a bad group yeah not no in the nfl a rough group we're gonna talk about jared Jared goff playing the fucking super bowl call me when matt stafford plays in the super bowl oh i'm sorry but like it's Uh, not easy to take your team to the super bowl Fresno State lost at Hawaii 27-24 by the identical 27-24 uh, score last week. You should have updated me. I actually watched, Kaner, watched that whole game Jay Kaner did, from the green room. <laughs> Jay Kaner did throw for 388 yards and four touchdowns. Jay Kaner did nothing game. wrong. 28-50 for 388 yards, three touchdowns, four interceptions. Who? The, the other player? That was Jake. He had four interceptions? Yeah. Ooh. The opponent, it was a very similar game to UW, Oregon State in some ways. Hawaii won despite their quarterback going 11 of 27 for 116 yards. Jake Hayner threw four picks. Yeah. Maybe we're not going to have that on the highlight reel. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to skip over that at the Look, end of the season. Was it at Hawaii? Yes. It's a long flight. It is. You know, Jake Hayner was jet lagged. <laughs> Well, anyway, just because a, a quarterback who has ever transferred, Joe Burrow transferring, means that Dylan Morris is going to be the number one pick in the draft. I didn't say that he's going to be the number one pick in the draft. <sighs> I just think if he ended up at a Mountain West program, he'd be very successful. Everybody would be successful at a Mountain West program because the Pac-12 is bad. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know if that logic holds, but sure. The problem is college sports. That logic holds. Anyway, can we so talk about a real sport? Let's talk about the where Seahawks. Where Goff can go to the Super Bowl? <laughs> Well, actually dropped one spot in DVOA after last weekend's win, Sunday's win over the San Francisco 49ers, presumably because of stronger opponent adjustments with Indianapolis and Tennessee both in the bottom 10 of DVOA. Tennessee losing to the New York Jets oh, on God. Sunday without Julio Jones. That loss really Brown. haunts me. It's one It's one that I, you. we left the game and we were all rested after napping at the stadium. And <laughs> you left the game and we're just like, that loss is going to haunt the team. And it does immediately. Yep. Immediately. If they were three and run three and one, we would be looking at this team differently. Yeah. Yeah, we would not be looking at them as tied for third in the NFC West. Uh fourth in offense, twenty-fifth in defense, now sixth in special teams. The Los Angeles Rams come to Seattle on Thursday night, fifth in DVOA. Where despite... were the Seahawks overall in DVOA, by the way? You said they dropped a spot, but not uh, for what? This is for people. It's like a like a sequel. Like you, you had to have seen the the first episode to know where they are. Do not question my nuts. They are eleventh. Uh, okay. 
And the LA Rams, as I said, are fifth, despite their lopsided 37-20 loss on Sunday at to Arizona. You know I'm taking a victory lap on the Cardinals right now. Oh, I you, said it. You deserve the victory lap on the off season. Oh, I said it multiple times throughout the off season. It's laughable how bad people thought the Cardinals would be with no logic whatsoever. Yeah, it was just they didn't like they didn't like Cliff. I mean, I don't know that I love Cliff Kingsbury, but I think Cliff Kingsbury actually, for things that can really be controlled by a coach, granted everything's controlled by a coach, fucks things up maybe less than Sean McVay does. Despite the fact that that Sean McVay took Jared Goff to a Super Bowl. I mean, the Arizona defense ranked sixth. Jared Goff took Sean McVay to a Super Bowl. Sorry. The Arizona defense ranks sixth in DVOA. The LA offense is substantially better, but... In, is in a reverse of last year, Arizona has the dramatically better defense this year. Uh, they're second in offense, the Rams, 20th in defense, 28th in special teams. So one reason they're still so high in DVOA, they actually outgained the Cardinals slightly on a per-play basis on Sunday. So you might be asking, well, how the hell did they lose by 17 points? And a key part of the answer is they lost an estimated 15% win probability on fourth down decisions oh not God. to go, according to Ben wow. Baldwin's model. The most in a game over the past two seasons. Wow. They kicked a field goal on fourth and four from the four and fourth and five from the 23, as well as punting on fourth and three from midfield. And then when they finally went for a fourth and goal from the one in the fourth quarter, down 34-13, they were stopped. And that, friends, is how you lose by 17 points despite being slightly better in yards per play. They also had two turnovers, a pretty brutal Sony Michelle fumble and a Stafford pick. <laughs> Again, your faces don't make great podcasting. I, I, I'm just I'm telling you. So they're they're all of a sudden all it took was one loss for, for people to recognize that there are some issues there. There are some issues there. They're not what you're going to claim they are because Matt Stafford is Matthew Stafford, I should say, is still fifth in the EPOA CPOE composite one spot ahead of Russell Wilson, 17 spots ahead of where he finished last season, and 24 spots ahead of where Jared Goff was in 2020. Oh, see, that was one bad year for Goff. I'm no Goff apologist. If you really are, a hidden strength for Stafford, he's been sacked on just 2.2% of dropbacks thus far, the lowest mark in the NFL. Goff was at 4% last season, the seventh lowest, and that's despite LA's increasing their intended average yards, intended air yards per attempt, I should say, according to Pro Football Reference tracking, from 6.5 per attempt with Goff to 8.6 thus far with Stafford. Uh, unclear how sustainable this is. Stafford has not been a particularly low sack QB in the past, but it's one reason it's like he's been so successful. It's like one pass to Deshaun Jackson that is really swinging this. If you take that out, how different do you, how different do you think this is? I don't think that there's one pass that the defense lost to Deshaun Jackson. And granted, the Seahawks probably will too. Well, I don't know if you've seen their secondary, but like. The, I think that is disproportionately weighing D- on D- here. Debo Samuel didn't see their secondary is the, the key. There is, there is an extraordinarily small sample size in these stats. You're looking at Jared Goff from a full season that includes the months of November and also December. Like, you're talking about Jared Oh, because Jared Goff was struggling in that notoriously bad L.A. weather? No, but you play in other places throughout a season. You don't just play in L.A. This is a... It's a bad take. But you understand that air yards are going... You can't compare the first four weeks of the season and a complete season. You oh. don't agree with this? I, I think it was well documented. You're comparing perfect passing weather to an, an entire season. It was well documented that Sean McVay has said that the, the playbook is open now that I have Matthew Stafford. It's all fucking horseshit, they though. They had training wheels on last year That's for Jared dumb. Goff. 
Yeah, Pete had training wheels. The Seahawks were winning the Super Bowl, and Pete was telling people had training wheels because coaches like to take credit for things. I, he's not taking credit for Matthew Stafford, other than, oh, I guess, the all- trade for him. Okay. And the numbers back it up. I, I don't know. I, you, you, you can dismiss the quotes in the stats. I, the, <laughs> you're just going out the eye test here? No, no. I'm, I'm, I'm reducing the stats to a small sample size. <laughs> That's what I'm telling you. Is that wrong? Yes. I'm saying On this particular account, it is wrong. Fair weather sample size. Yeah, someone is having some fair weather analysis here. I would agree. Uh, the, the Rams will be in the Super Bowl. And I'll be like... <laughs> Well, they've got to the Super Bowl. Ah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, maybe they'll score a touchdown. I mean, we'll talk about know. a difference in a second here. No. People, these are the same people who thought that the 49ers were a Super Bowl contender. Like, I'm. I mean, the 49ers were well on their way to three and one. Do you in know the first that the half. 49ers? I guess we. I mean, we didn't really get into the game on Sunday. Ah. Uh. Because I got into talking about the Rams. You just I got you excited had about Stafford. to talk about Stafford. Well, I mean, look, you got so excited to talk about Stafford. Let's finish talking about the Rams, because I do want to go backwards. Okay. Uh, now, one thing he's benefiting from, the Rams offensive line ranks number two in pass block win rate, number three in run block win rate, according to ESPN Analytics. Uh, Stafford Can Andrew is, Worth just retire? <laughs> Stafford has found instant chemistry with Cooper Cup, whose 30 catches are tied for second in the NFL. As you mentioned, uh, Deshaun Jackson had the 75-yard touchdown in week three, although he hasn't been a big factor overall. Van Jefferson is definitely the wide receiver three still. He's been quite effective. Robert Wood's kind of quiet thus far this season. Hey, remember when people were worried about the Cam Akers injury that he, his season injury, injury suffered, I believe, on like the first day of training camp? Well, Daryl Henderson is number five in rushing DR in three games. Uh, Sonny Michelle predictably less effective, including that lost fumble last week. He saw just seven snaps total last week after starting week three with Henderson Why? unavailable. Why did they make this trade? Because teams still think running backs matter. But also, why, why did the Seahawks draft Rashad Penny in the first round? The thing is, like, even if you think running backs matter, there's Sony there's Michelle a whole isn't good. Yeah, we've got a, We've got the proof of concept, the Jake Hayner proof of concept with that's the threshold. <laughs> With Sony Michelle already for multiple seasons. So he needs to throw four interceptions <laughs> against Hawaii. Like, <laughs> he's jet legged. Maybe Sony Michelle is still jet legged for the flight across the country. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's a very long that flight. The LA trip takes yeah. a lot out of you for weeks at a time. <laughs> so the reason the Rams, the concern for the Rams is not their offense, which again ranks second in DPOA. It's the defense, which was carried them to the Super Bowl in whatever year that was, 2018? Mm-hmm. Goff. 2019. You, you, you mispronounced Goff, but okay. 2018. Uh, and was among the NFL's very best last season under Brandon Staley. You think their dro- defense carried them to the Super Bowl that year? That's how you would describe it? We can double-check the DVOA, but I'm pretty sure they were better defensively than they were offensively. I, I mean, especially during the playoffs. Everything. Oh, no, I guess that's not true at all. Unless I'm looking at the wrong year. It's pre-Jalen Ramsey. They were 16th in defensive DVOA in 2018. Wow. Stunning. ESPN's Kevin Pelton admits that Jared Goff is better than the Rams' defense. <laughs> that season, he was better. The next two seasons, he was not better. Uh, Maybe Sean McVay got worse. And in the playoffs. Again, they're second in offensive DVOA this year. <laughs> The last year, they were 4th in defensive DVOA, 10th in offensive DVOA. This year, they have dropped to 20th in defensive DVOA, dropping off against both the pass, where they're 17th, and the rush, where they're 22nd. 
let's dive a little deeper into these numbers. Opponents are completing 71% of their passes against the Rams, which somehow is only the fifth highest mark. The NFL completes a lot of passes now. <laughs> their yards per completion hasn't increased dramatically, but the Rams are ninth in that regard after leading the league last season. Their sack rate is down from second to 10th. Maybe a little unlucky in that regard since their sixth in pass, win, pass rush win rate, actually up from ninth last season, according to ESPN Analytics. And then the other thing is last year, Brandon State was basically daring teams, run on us. Go ahead, run on us. We're playing these two high God, safeties. Brandon uh, last year, they gave up 3.8 yards per carry. This year, they're allowing 4.7 yards per carry, the seventh highest in the NFL. I mean, we, we talked about we talk about literally over and over and over again about how defense is inconsistent from year to year, and yes. I, I do think that losing Brandon Staley is a part of that. But I actually think it's probably more about the personnel. Oh, and the regression also. Like, yeah, the Brandon Staley got that job, and I think he's a totally qualified coach. Obviously, I mean, but like he's allowed. He realizes that you should actually go for fourth downs. But yeah, it's like. <laughs> What if you could take Sean McVay and make him go for fourth downs? Only imagine. I mean, and I mean, gave him Justin Herbert, who's no, the, kind of like a young Stafford. The worst case scenario, by the way, Ben tweeted about this is what if McVay decides to get aggressive on fourth down this week? <laughs> the idea that, I mean, John Gruden is fairly aggressive on fourth downs, right? Uh, I think he's reasonably aggressive, yeah. I, I think he's even quite aggressive on fourth downs, at least has been this year, right? Is he one of Sean McVay's mentors? Yes. He's part of the McVay tree. Sometimes you like take parts of your mentor, but not other parts, and it's unclear why Sean McVay is like everyone thinks like young, you know, aggressive coach. Just no interest in going for it. Kyle Shanahan, too. Cowards, really, if you ask me. But it's both a seventy-year-old Pete Carroll and these super young coaches <laughs> in the NFC West hate for going for fourth downs. You know who likes going for fourth downs? Who's that? Your guy Cliff Kingsbury. <laughs> it is pretty wild how much how much hate Cliff got last year. It was like literally just because of a Kyler injury, right? They were they were on I don't their know if I would way. Say it's just because, but they of were Kyler. on their way to the playoffs, and because he had to start Chris Streveler in Week Seventeen, they had a chance at the playoffs. Anyway, I mean, on the other side was starting John Wolford. Brandon Stanley was going, or, or the Rams. Uh, the, Raiders, defense, the Raiders are number three in terms of going in for it most frequently when they should. Until they play Brandon Stanley, uh, the Raiders' defense or the God. The Rams' defense was going to regress either way, Brandon Staley or not, right? But without that, it might have been exacerbated a little bit, the defensive regression that's happening here. And it happens at a time where the Seahawks' offense, you know, is still a very good offense. Yes. And I think that's getting a little bit lost in the mix of really just how good this offense actually is. And you look well, at people these... want to obsess over the periods where they're not good. And look, they were awful. Those first five drives. And it was weird because there was none of the motion at the snap. There was no play action, none of it. And then Alex Collins came in the game and Russell Wilson asked for tempo. And all of a sudden everything was back. They ran the good offense the rest of the way. There, there, there are points where they run the good offense a little bit earlier in games. It's not just exclusively reserved for the fourth quarter. It's just random when they run the good offense and when they don't. Yes. And for some reason, they didn't the entire second half against the Titans and just blew the game. Correct. But I think that's getting a little bit 
lost in the mix here is just how good the Seahawks offense actually is and just how great Russell Wilson has been this year. I mean, you you look at these numbers and you look at some of the plays that he's made and the balls that he's put up there. Obviously, deep passes are inconsistent, but he's putting balls on the money, even if the receivers aren't making plays. Like, Russell Wilson is still, I think, uh, with the offensive line and the pressure that he's been facing, playing up to the caliber that he has ever played. Uh, I mean, I don't think he's playing as well as the first six weeks or whatever it was of last season. I mean, he was the number one quarterback in the NFL over that span. He's Is not that been true, the number though, or were receivers just making plays? Uh, I mean, yes, DK's had some drops, but Wilson also ran himself into some sacks in the first half on Sunday. He was not sharp, as he sometimes is, which is understandable, because without those sacks, you don't get the play where he is in the grasp. I forget who, what the defender was, and then gets away and throws a touchdown to Freddie Swain. Like, one of the most incredible moments. Beautiful. It's the reason we watch football. It is. Is that... I guess looking back at the Rams game or at the 49ers game, I missed basically the entire first half. Or or when I, actually when I started watching was basically right when the Seahawks had their drive that they put it all together. So you're the reason. And I I it just kind of occasionally you have these sluggish starts. I mean, usually they don't happen in perfect weather. Usually they happen when it's rainy in Seattle. So that was a little... Oh, if it's rainy in Seattle, the whole game's shot. Well, I've got some bad news about the rest of the season. Not Thursday night, though. Yeah, Thursday night looks good. Not Thursday night. Uh, I I just kind of loved almost everything that I witnessed in that game. Even when it didn't work, I thought their process was pretty good. There were some of the like wideers or the tight end screens that they were running in plays like that. Where yeah, it's like, the, that doesn't work as well with Will Disley as it does with Gerald Everett. It turns out and they might have just like gone to the well a little bit too much. Who hopefully will be back this week after testing positive for COVID nineteen last week. Had to love the way that Alex Collins was running the ball and how the offense looked, getting the ball downfield, getting DK in space, you know, giving the receivers options to get past cornerbacks. Like I think offensively the Seahawks could have scored even more points than they did in that game. Yeah, I think that's certainly possible. I mean that there was that DK third down that he was very close to pulling in, which would have been a big play. I mean, I think that's one thing that encourages me about the Seahawks actually is that they've struggled so much on third down. They were two of 10 on Sunday. That's this thing that is going to regress to the mean. How you play on first and second down is going to be more predictive going forward than how you play on third down. And they've been much better on first and second down than third down. What about the defense, though? Well, I think we're going to learn a lot on Sunday. Thursday. All right. Uh, I mean, I think we're going to learn about both, both units for the Seahawks because obviously the Rams' defense was such a problem for them last season in particular and is probably the biggest reason that Shane Waldron is the offensive coordinator right now and not Brian Schottenheimer. But defensively, I don't think we learned much on Sunday because the Seahawks were getting torched early in this game. Jimmy Garoppolo was off target a fair bit and, you know, particularly on third down, and they took advantage of that. And then in the second half, Trey Lance came into the game and it turns out there might be a reason that Trey Lance was not playing out of Jimmy Garoppolo. Honestly, that was my favorite part of the entire weekend. 
<laughs> it's uh, just like the whole like Trey Lance Everything that happened to me all weekend was knowing that Kyle Shanahan traded up to draft Mac Jones, and everybody knew that he traded up to draft Mac Jones, got bullied into drafting Trey Lance, and we got to watch Trey Lance try to throw a football. And it was a majestic sight. I, like, unless, I'm not, sorry, but right Kyle Shanahan is not running any sort of fucking John Harbaugh Ravens offense. That ain't it for him. He has an offense that he's going to run, and Trey Lance does not run that offense. The, All of the people who are like, just imagine if somebody ran the run. ball very effectively with Trey Lance in the game. Uh, now, part of it was they happened to fall behind and they needed to score a lot with Trey Lance, and that, that's not his forte at this point. <sighs> he is very good at completing passes to wide open Debo Samuel oh, after yeah. defensive miscommunications I, in the I Seahawks just, secondary. But, like, how do you judge Sidney Jones based it's like, on how well he defended Trey Lance? Like, you can't evaluate that. What if you took the Kyle Shannon offense and put the least accurate quarterback you've ever seen into that offense? I, it uh, is, again, I don't know if you saw the Davis Mills CPOE on Sunday. Davis Mills. He, he literally got bullied into it by the internet. Like, people knew, and he just couldn't draft. He could not fucking do it he couldn't draft the player that everybody thought he traded up for and so he had to he also is not the general manager of the team they have a general manager his name is john lynch used to play a football i don't know if you're aware you understand what happened though we all know what happened mac jones looked good on sunday night i I mean who knows but he didn't didn't push the ball down but neither does jimmy g of a lot better than trey lance did that's that is fair. But no, you, I mean, Justin Fields looked very good on Sunday and didn't look good in his first start or in his first action. So it's also historically, I think the evidence shows football. I think there was a football outsider study many years ago that when quarterbacks come in in relief, it's not as effective as when they start the game. No. So I, I will give it. We'll give Trey Lance the benefit of it out there. We'll give more than one half a week. <laughs> it was but, against the Seahawks defense, though. So, But again, it made it very difficult to evaluate how good the Seahawks defense is. What about Ryan Neal, though? It certainly seemed like a positive change, uh, getting him in there in a dime package on third down situations. He was involved in a lot of the key third down stops. As bad as the Seahawks were on third down in this game, and they went two for 10, the 49ers were even worse going two of 14 on third down. Preposterously. So the, the 49ers averaged 6.3 yards per play. I mean, I was talking about the, like, the slight advantage of the Rams having the Cardinals. The 49ers averaged a full two more yards per play than the Seahawks. Like, obviously, a lot of that was on the Debo Samuel touchdown. But and just still, garbage time. Like They outgained them 457 to 234. That is preposterous. I'm not, I'm not buying it. They didn't outplay the Seahawks in this game. I, yeah, I mean, yes, a lot of that was garbage time. They also, the two turnovers were a big factor. I love Ryan Neal. Like, yeah, I mean, I'm all for it. We liked him last year. The idea that he wasn't going to be... They have three good safeties. And the thing about football is you don't have to play a certain amount of people, right? You don't have to play... It's like what people learn in baseball, right? To bring it back to the sport that this podcast really is about. I think we've learned it in basketball, too. You don't have to have set people in set places. You can play three people who are assigned to be safety, and you can play them wherever you want throughout the defense, right? You could play Jamal Adams on the defensive line. You could play Ryan Neal in the secondary. But having Ryan Neal on the field, he is clearly one of their 11 best defenders, so put him on the field. I mean, I don't know that I actually think it's going to be like that transformative playing Ryan Neal instead of Jordan Brooks. (laughs) Ryan Neal looks very good. It's not necessarily because of uh, uh, instead of Jordan Brooks. I mean, he's playing instead of Jordan Brooks. 
I don't know who would you, you rather have covering receivers? Yeah, I agree. Ryan Neal or Jordan Brooks? Yeah. Like, and like in the run game, Ryan Neal does not seem to be a big downgrade. It's, it's a. I'm it was saying a start good Ryan Neal at weak side linebacker. There we go. Thank you. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. You could call it whatever you want to call it, right? But Ryan Neal is an upgrade being on the field. I think so. Again, I don't think that was the biggest factor on Sunday. I think it, it was helped. San Francisco's quarterback play. It helped for sure. But we're going to find out this week. I, n- yes. I mean, it's not a definitive answer. It's one matchup in one week, but we'll get a lot clearer sense of whether the Seahawks defense has actually turned the corner or just took advantage of Jimmy G struggling and then being injured. Take away the one big play about Sidney Jones that Sidney Jones got lost in or whatever, assuming that was his assignment. Yes, Pika said after the game that was that was Sidney Jones. Did he? I think so. Wow, I heard that snitching. Uh, <laughs> I mean, look, it's not like it's not Sidney Jones's fault that he blew a communication. That's why you don't play guys that you didn't add until the end of training camp. Like that's to be expected. That's why he wasn't playing beforehand when everyone was flipping out about Trey Flowers playing but over Sidney Jones. That's that, why taking that one play away, he was fine on a per play basis. I think Sidney Jones was better than Trey Flowers. Probably. The bar was set really low. <laughs> and those are things that sometimes you just have to play to figure that stuff out. Like, you don't want it to be a 70-yard touchdown to Debo Samuel, obviously. Like, that's kind of worst-case scenario. But at the same time, the Seahawks were fortunately in a position that they could withstand it. I mean, he had the uh, the he had some breakups. You know, that was good. I, he was also targeted a considerable amount by San Francisco, understandably. I can't think of a good play that Trey Flowers has made all season. Yeah. There must be one. Yeah. But I think it was a factor. I mean, well, again, we're going to learn this week. The, you're going to be tested because... I mean, not that the 49ers receivers are bad, although Brandon Ayuk has had a disappointing season, but, you barely know, it's the, very barely different. Barely on the field. Ayuk? Yeah. No, he's barely get thrown to. Wasn't he uh, uh, in week one, a scratch? Maybe, but he was on the field on Sunday. They just weren't throwing him the ball because Debo Samuel was always open. Uh well, you're going to find out a lot more about your secondary going up, going up against Stafford, Cup, Woods, etc. I, mean, I think we're probably going to find out bad things about the secondary. Like, seems likely. I, I don't think it is fair to say that the secondary is going to be great against the Rams' offense. And I don't know if that necessarily means that the Rams' offense is amazing. Like, this is something we've seen every single season. Mm-hmm. That number two in DVO. Number two in DVO, and also since Sean McVay has. Taken over the Rams. Like, they've been very good against the Seahawks. It's an offense that is designed to work extraordinarily well against this type of defense. And what it is going to come down to on, again, Thursday. Still Thursday, not Sunday. All right. Okay. On Thursday Night Football is Russell Wilson on national TV. Especially Russell Wilson on national TV at home. At home on a Thursday night. It's not supposed to be raining. You just you can't help but think of the game that happened two seasons ago 
uh, when Greg Zerline missed the field goal to lose the game. Granted, they were right in the position to win the game. They were. It would have been a very different post-game pod. Uh, we call it the Tedrick Thompson game, some of us. But <laughs> The Tedrick Thompson fan club. But I think this is the kind of game where they're going to be running a little bit on fumes. But I really believe in the Seahawks offense. And I think if there's anybody who understands how to attack this Rams defense in the league, Shane Waldron could be that person. I sure hope so. Uh, and I don't know if, I don't know if that ability translates the other way, right? I think it could be more about Shane Waldron. Well, they, uh, the, the Rams already knew how to shut down the Seahawks offense. They don't need additional information no, about saying, how to shut down the Seahawks offense. I'm saying like, yeah, sure. Fine. Shut <laughs> down can't. the Seahawks offense. I don't know. They knew I, how to in the one year that they had a really good defense. Brandon Staley knew. Sean McVay is not their defensive coordinator. And Brandon not, Staley no. is not walking through that door. He is not. Rest assured. You know who is walking through that door? Who? Aaron Donald. And his 15 sacks and 15 camps against Russell Wilson. Over under two and a half sacks. We'll take the under on two and a half. He doesn't have two and a half this season. Okay, then. No, if it's one and a half, I'm going to have a harder choice. Russell Wilson can be sacked two times by Aaron Donald, and the Seahawks can still win this game comfortably. Sure. Because the issue isn't necessarily completely Aaron Donald. The issue is, can they complete 71% of their passes? I mean, Because if that's what's happening, the Seahawks are going to win this game. I feel like Jared Everett would be helpful in that regard. Okay. D. Eskridge might also be helpful in that regard. He didn't practice on I Tuesday. I don't think we're going to see D. Eskridge. But I, I, I have a, a minor bit of optimism. <laughs> <laughs> After the game on Sunday, seeing the offense, seeing the resilience of the offense, coming back, doing what they did against this 49ers defense, you know, starting in the late second quarter on, they were very good. And again, they could have been even better in this game. Can the Seahawks get the ball downfield? Of course they can. Can they hit those plays? Of course they can. And can they consistently complete passes? Absolutely they can. Does it matter to me whether Chris Carson is playing or not? Absolutely not. Uh, I think that the Seahawks have... Do not matter. 61% chance of winning this game. Oh boy. Can we queue up where you said last week that the Huskies were not losing to Oregon State? Did I say that? You're dead. I didn't know Dylan Morris was going to be starting. <laughs> you thought Craig Dodden was playing. That made all the difference. Uh, I'm, a, I'm actually a little bit shocked they lost that game. I am not shocked they lost that game. What was yards per play? What was the difference? It's not on the ESPN box scores, so I would have to calculate it. All right. Machine. <laughs> well, I'm trying to give you my odds for... My uh, odds of victory for the Seahawks wait, 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 total yards three. I mean, they outgained Oregon State at the very least. Did they run more plays though? It doesn't list them out of plays. <laughs> they ran sixty-one. Oregon State ran sixty-six. So no, they outgained them on a per play I, basis. I think that the Huskies outplayed outplayed Oregon State in this game, and Oregon State just got lucky. Literally, what happened was that Oregon in a game that I didn't see. I'm indignant about <laughs> Oregon State. Uh, got lucky to have stopped Dylan Morris in one fucking fourth down. 
That was ultimately the difference in the game, yes. Between winning and losing. So how are you looking at that and saying that I'm off base? I don't think it was a 68% chance of winning kind of game. Oh, you haven't seen the Sean, Sean McCrew Wildcat offense. I, I have. I'd like to see more of it, actually. A lifelong Wildcat fan. People, I just don't understand why people hate the Wildcat so much. It's because people overvalue the idea of... They, they, they overvalue the idea of being dynamic when you're doing things. They love the idea of a run. And they love the idea of a pass. But a running back who can't do both, oh, I think that scares people. Sean McGurk can definitely do both, good sir. When did he you? throws that pass, I mean, he did not in this game. He didn't need to. But when he does, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be great. In the, in the Rose Bowl, in his senior it's season. It's actually really funny because people are against the idea of telegraphing offense unless it's just a straight run. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? The, the difference between these two things? A run up the gut, old people would be like, mm, good offense, grind it out. But a running back out of the quarterback position, running up the gut, that's bad offense. Uh, I am telling you that there is... I suspect is, people's internal logical beliefs are not that internally consistent. Anyways, about the Seahawks, <laughs> Seahawks Rams game. I'm fucking pissed off about this Husky loss. <laughs> How did Dylan Morris not get a yard? Sometimes it happens. 80% of the time, it works every time. The Rams are a better team than the Seahawks. Home field advantage is basically non-existent this season. So therefore, the Rams should be favored in this game, as they are. They're favored by two and a half points, by the way. And not inconsiderable amount. I think I think the Seahawks have a slightly better chance than that. I give them like a 45% chance of winning this game. It was loud in San Francisco, I have to say. I was listening to the radio broadcast, and I was like, wow. Those people sound like a team that hasn't won a Super Bowl since nineteen ninety six. Yes, the Super Bowl was played in ninety five. It was ninety four season. Okay. The Cowboys won nine in ninety six after the ninety five season. They they sound like fans who have not won since nineteen ninety five and feel like they rightfully deserve one. The Seahawks sound like a team that. Let me fans, tell you, the, the Seahawks fans sound like a team that won the Super Bowl and. 2013 and feels like they deserve all of them since then uh 49ers were not fans were not making a lot of noise when i went to a 49ers saints game back in 2016 why did you go to that game i had free tickets it's still not a reason to drive out to santa clara that's fair all right well expose flaws in what you did and i will expose flaws in your logic on thursday night not sunday when the Seahawks play the Los Angeles Rams, just clarifying things for you here. I didn't say St. Louis at any point during this podcast. No, no, I, think, I? I think we've moved past that. Thank goodness. But just so you understand. Did I refer to them as the, the Phoenix Cardinals or the St. Louis Cardinals at any point? That's the undefeated Phoenix Cardinals too. Thank you. Uh, I'm just excited for the game. I mean, Thursday oh, night. Oh, it's going to be fun. Being Until the game starts at least. No, being at a national TV game. Well, you'll be there. I'm not going to be there. Oh, being at a game without you being there will feel <laughs> so great. Every game back, I've had to have you there with me. But <laughs> every time back, I've had to take a nap. Under the lights, there's literally there's nothing that feels better. And I think Thursday night feels the best. The best? I think it feels better... Sunday night, depending on the matchups, 
right? Sunday night's pretty fun. But Thursday night, you know it's all you, right? Like it's everybody is focused on the city of Seattle. It's also all you on Monday night. There's there's a bit of a, a hangover, right? I feel like more people are watching on Monday night pretty clearly than Thursday. Thursday night, night is it's a phenomenal well, day to be at a football game, right? You're heading into the weekend. Everything about it is great. There's going to be a great atmosphere at the stadium. the The first one, it was it was a little bit tired, right? Like it was a sleepy game. It was hot out. We're not used to this. It's going to be cool. It's going to be crisp. It's going to be clear. That is Russell Wilson weather. Okay. You know it is. We'll see if it's Matt Stafford or Matthew Stafford weather as well. He does a little bit better in domes. <laughs> I mean, so does Russ, if we're being honest. Only if he's playing Carson once. Uh, I'm just, I'm so excited for it to get back to even being at a game in this scenario, heading into it, everybody vaccinated or having a negative test within 48 hours. 72. 72 hours? Yeah. Great. Thursday night. Thursday night, just so you know. Uh, <laughs> it is to, turn your TV on. So one time. Yeah, you didn't say it one time. You said it over and over and over again. Oh, I didn't say it over and over again, did I? You said it at least two or three times. Anyway, don't tune in on Sunday, just so you understand. <laughs> uh, I'll text you. I'll text you that I'm there. <laughs> Thanks. Look, I wish you could do the same for me whenever there's a Sounders game. I'm pretty sure I told you. Just text me when there's a Sounders game. I probably will tune in. I just don't know these things. So. <laughs> Really publicly available information. <laughs> it's going to become the same for the Kraken. <laughs> well, that's going to be a much more frequent text. They that, play a lot. I don't know. That actually, it actually is nice when I can like know fairly consistently that they're playing. Anyway, I'm just, just turn on Root Sports. It's either going to be the Kraken or the Blazers. It's something you'll want to watch. I'm ready. I'm all about that Mariners Sports Network. Uh, it's going to show up to the Mariners Pyramid Ale House, go drink beforehand at T-Mobile Park, enjoy some Jared <clears throat> Kalanick, and... Also, across the street, enjoy the Seahawks versus the Rams on Thursday night. On that note. Thanks for listening. Thanks.